ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I know we should start, but I don't want to interrupt this guy. That is lovely. That's going. It's gone 200 metres. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. This is The Money. We'll come back to the golf course a bit later and hear what it was like 25 years ago this week as the beginning of the GFC really began to make its presence felt. Let's start with jobs. This week, you'll have heard the government released Working Future, its white paper on jobs and opportunities. One of the things it didn't have in it was an employment target. One of the things it did was a definition of full employment. Jeff Borland is one of Australia's leading labour economists. What does he make? Of that definition. The white paper says that the definition of full employment is when everyone who wants a job can get one without searching for uh, too long. I think that is actually uh, a clever definition. It turns out that there's a lot that's packed into it that if you read the um, chapter on full employment in the white paper becomes evident. Right. Well, we'll get, we'll get into that. But one of the things it hasn't done is set a target for that. Should, should it not have done that? Well, first thing to say is you do need a target somewhere along the line here. You you need a numerical target to know what policy's aiming at. But I don't think the white paper was the place uh, to do this. The definition in the paper is for the long term. And as the paper itself says, the specific numerical target's likely to to change over time. So yes, we definitely need a numerical uh, target, but the purpose of the white paper was to set a a more general definition. I think what the paper had to do was give us a good definition of what full employment is and, really importantly, give us a process for going from the definition to numerical target, and the paper does that. You're on the show uh, earlier in the year. I think we were talking about the white paper coming up, and one of the arguments you made at the time was that there should be a number because without a number, you don't get movement on it in the same way, do you? Well, exactly. I think there needs to be a numerical target as part of the the whole policy making process for achieving full employment. But I think the key issue is sort of where is that target decided? And I don't think the right place for the target was in the white paper because yeah, you know, if the white paper came out and said, well, we think the target at the moment's four percent, a couple of years later, sort of stuff happens in the um, in the economy, and we've got a different target that we should be aiming for. Okay, well, we'll come back to the target perhaps at the end. The white paper broadens the meaning of full employment. And this is something I think that you've been thinking about for a while, but how does it do that? It really broadens out the definition of full employment in several ways. First of all, uh, the white paper is very explicit about having regard to both underemployment and unemployment when we think about um, full employment. So we shouldn't just think of full employment as being about getting an unemployment rate at particular um, target level. That underemployment's become such a big part of what economists call labour underutilisation that you have to take that into account as well. Second really important part of the broadening is that it introduces an equity dimension. The white paper says, well, look, at the moment, we've got unemployment about 3.5% overall, 
but we have to recognise that there are still groups who are facing high barriers to getting into the labour market, First Nations people, people with disabilities, people in some regions for whom employment outcomes uh, still aren't acceptable. And so as well as having an overall target, we also have to you know, think about placing a lot of weight on outcomes for those specific groups. Probably less directly as well. The other broadening is the emphasis that the white paper puts on the quality of jobs that people have as, as mattering. So is there anything in the paper that would give practical effect to addressing this stuff? Yeah, so this really comes to the, the point that I was making before about process. I read the white paper as sort of saying two things. First of all, we need an increased emphasis on directing policy to achieve the lowest possible rate of labour underutilisation at any time. You know, one example of that, the paper uses the term sustained full employment, which it refers to as basically at any point in time achieving the lowest possible rate of labour underutilisation we, we can. And I think the emphasis is on at any time. I think when you read the white paper, there's some sentiment there that perhaps that hasn't always been done. The other thing that the paper does is it really reintroduces the idea that um, over the longer term, policy should also be directed towards lowering the rate of labour underutilisation that we can achieve by, in particular, improving employment outcomes for groups with high barriers to employment so that we don't want to think of sort of this target as being a target that policy can't do anything about, as well as sort of policy getting us to that target, we should also think of policy progressively shifting that uh, target downwards. That is increasing the amount of employment, decreasing the amount of labour underutilisation. So, so I think the white paper is quite explicit about sort of how the current government intends giving practical effect to the definition. The white paper also makes it clear that as a tool, the NIRU the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment is not perfect. And this, of course, is is a way of using the unemployment level to manage inflation, but it's not going so far as to say the RBA should stop using it. So should it have done that, Jeff? Yeah, so on this question, I think it's really important to distinguish between two things. One thing is the idea that there's, at any point in time, some rate of labour underutilisation and if we try and push sort of too much below that, then we're going to cause excessive wage inflation. And the white paper is not stepping away from that at all. I mean, that's this concept of a sustained full employment. The white paper is fully acknowledging that, look, at any point in time, because of what's referred to as sort of frictional unemployment, structural unemployment, there'll be some level of underutilization that we have to be careful about pushing below because if we try to do that then um, we're going to get excessive wage inflation so so the white paper is not stepping away from that at all what it is saying is that the method that's been used in recent times to decide on what that rate is which has mainly been this um, econometric uh, model based approach of determining the rate the white paper is expressing some scepticism, you might say, or criticism, you could read it as, of that approach. And certainly of that approach as the sole or only approach for deciding what the target rate um, should be. And I think that's that's also a hugely important part of the approach to full employment that's in the paper, and, and much for the better. When do you think we should see the target, given that it wasn't in the white paper? When would you expect it? 
I guess we have targets at the moment. Yeah, both RBA and, and Treasury sort of have their current targets. I guess the question is, when will we see a target that comes from application of the process that the white paper is suggesting for getting to the target? And yeah, I would hope that you know over the next you know few months and that as the impact of this process that's been proposed in the white paper flows through to the RBA's choice of target and to Treasury's own thinking about the target that we start to sort of at least see the target rates that are being chosen, hopefully justified in terms of this, the new approach that the white paper is setting out. For example, justifying the target, not in terms of this econometrically estimated target, but rather looking at a broad suite of labour market indicators to decide on um, what the target should be. Well, we'll have to wait and see, Jeff. Thank you very much for joining us again. Thanks, Richard. Jeff Borland is Professor of Economics at the University of Melbourne. What were you doing 15 years ago? It was late September 2008 and the troubles already started. On September the 15th, the financial services company, Lehman Brothers, the fourth biggest investment bank in the US, files for bankruptcy. $600 billion in losses. It's the largest bankruptcy in American history. The Dow Jones drops 4.5%. Two weeks later, things are worse and the world is beginning to panic. And Warwick McKibben is in the room for this. He was a member of the RBA board at the time. Warwick, what was going through your mind? What was the mood like? Well, actually, we'd been anticipating a problem for some time because in 2006, the US housing market looked like it was starting to collapse. Uh, And so this had a long lead up to the actual crisis itself. It actually goes back further than that. It goes all the way back to the dot-com bubble bursting and even before that to the Asian financial crisis. So there was a lot of of warnings that, in fact, something was wrong. We actually cut rates in early September by 25 basis points in anticipation that things were not looking good in the US. The Lehman Brothers bankruptcy was a surprise because other institutions had been bailed out in the lead up and the Fed decided to stop the bailout and that totally changed the mood both in the US but around the world and it very quickly became a crisis. It was very different for Australia uh, because we weren't having a financial crisis. We didn't have the exposure to mortgage-backed securities. We didn't have all these houses being built with nobody in them, which had been financed by debt, which had been packaged by securitised institutions. So we were facing a very, very different Mm. shock than what was happening in the US and the UK. In later years, you wrote, the question of whether it was better to act on what you know, an increasing risk of inflation and asset bubbles in Australia, rather than what you fear, is a difficult dilemma for policymakers. Can you just talk us through that dilemma and what was at stake? Yes, so it's an important point because uh, there is a tendency on central bank boards, but policymakers generally, just to keep waiting to get more information and actually not to change interest rates when you should be changing interest rates in anticipation that you might be wrong. And so there's always this trade-off between anticipating a shock like we were anticipating there would be something coming out of the US. We didn't know it would be as big as it was. Uh, And so you had to move partly, but once... Once you knew that there was a crisis, then you had to act incredibly quickly. We actually modelled a global financial crisis for the National Australia Bank in 2006 uh, as one of our scenarios. So we, we knew what potentially would unfold and what was required when it happened was a very large cut in interest rates to offset the very high increase in risk premium throughout the economy. 
Obviously, this problem that, that began in the US, this has been very well documented now, but why and how did it spread so quickly? Well, there was direct and indirect spreading. The direct spreading were the financial institutions around the world that were linked. And so there are a lot of financial institutions in the UK that were holding these toxic securities in the US, which were effectively a whole range of mortgages made to people who really couldn't afford them and to, for houses which were empty. And so those mortgages, when they collapsed, they brought down the entire securitised assets that back them. And so if that was on your balance sheet, something you had that was valuable today or yesterday, it was no longer valuable. So any financial institutions that were heavily exposed to the US were then impacted. And anyone who was exposed, for example, in Australia, there were uh, some banks, NAB, I think, had some exposure to the UK. So there was this direct link through the financial system. I think the other aspect, and this is where I was very critical of the Prime Minister and the Treasurer at the time, was that they were going to meetings in London and New York, and they were hearing of this massive financial crisis in London and New York, and they were coming back to Australia and saying, this is the end of the world as we know it. And that sort of political loss of confidence frightened both households, firms and financial markets in Australia. And I think that piece by Kevin Rudd, which was the end of capitalism and, and, the, and the speeches by Wayne Swan were very counterproductive because the contagion through increased risk came through that mechanism, as well as the heavily integrated um, news services where everybody was hearing continuously of a crisis in the US and the UK, which was a real crisis, but not everybody was facing the financial collapse that these two economies in particular were facing. That's interesting, that, and I hadn't thought of that, despite having been a kind of in the media for decades and a student of it, is that that effect of little um, notifications on your phone from the countries that we kind of feel very connected to for historical and cultural reasons about what was happening there changed the mood here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, economics is, is mostly about psychology uh, and financial markets react to news wherever it is. And uh, some misinformation, rumours, incorrect interpretation of certain uh, events can very, very quickly spread through financial markets and they reprice instantly. And that can have very large real effects on the economy. Australia was one of just four developed countries that avoided a recession in 2009. I think the others were Israel and Poland and South Korea. How did we do that? I think it was a combination of good luck and good planning. The good luck was that uh, China had a massive stimulus uh, of infrastructure in their economy and they were buying a lot of our mining and energy and a lot of products from Australia. So they increased demand for Australia's exports, which was the good luck part of it. But the good policy was we had a fiscal stimulus. We had capacity to increase um, government spending and cut taxes. We cut interest rates from 7.25% eventually to 3.25%, actually eventually to 3%. Uh, and we also had a very highly concentrated banking sector, which I always thought was a bad idea because you have to pay more for banking services. But having four major banks meant that they were very well capitalised. And so when the stress went through the financial system, they were able to f survive uh, without very much financial stress at all. So the APRA regulations, the various other regulations throughout the economy uh, had helped us a lot. And so 
it was probably about 10 factors which contributed to Australia avoiding a recession. The flexibility of the exchange rate was important because the exchange rate was able to fall to depreciate, which made our exports cheaper overseas. So we could actually sell more and take it as an income reduction rather than as an employment reduction. And so that was key as well to why Australia did so so well. I'm about to, to read a book uh, called Seven Crashes, which is a, a history of, of different crashes around the world, written by the economic historian Harold James, who's at Yale. And just starting it, Warwick, what, what is clear is that they're different every time. They, they might look the same or there's different lessons. But were there policy lessons from the GFC that we should be learning for when oh. the next one comes? And we've just, of course, we're still getting through the pandemic. Well, the next one, it's already on its way, I hate to say, because if you look at the US 10-year bond rates, they've gone well above uh, 4.5% and the Fed has moved very quickly as have other central banks. What we know is after the dot-com bubble burst in the US and uh, those dot-com firms um, fell into uh, bankruptcy, the Fed cut interest rates to about 1%, which was historically low. That led to a build-up of demand and liquidity in the economy until 2004. That's when the housing overinvestment occurred. Interest rates were too low. They were kept too low for too long. People could borrow lots of money, so they did. They built houses that no one wanted. And then from 2004, the Fed started raising interest rates, and that led to what we've been seeing over the last 12 months. A lot of investments, which sounded like a great idea at 1%, were no longer a good idea at 4 and 5%. And so that misallocation of capital that occurred because of ultra-loose monetary policy looks very similar to the misallocation of capital that we saw due to ultra-loose monetary policy in response to COVID and post-COVID. Uh, the amount of liquidity, interest rates went to 1% in 2004, they went to negative, well, they went to zero, but there was so much other non-conventional monetary policy mm. that the effective interest rate was negative. And a lot of people borrowed and a lot of people spent on things which didn't generate a return. So when interest rates go back up, there's a lot of stranded assets. It's exactly what we're seeing today. It's not in the dot-com, uh, it's not in housing, but it's in other parts of the financial system and other parts of the economy. Uh, and the central banks know that. And that's why so many central banks, including ours, has raised interest rates to try and, and get rid of that liquidity, which shows up eventually essentially as higher inflation, but also shows up as very vulnerable financial markets. Uh, and that's the situation we're in right now. To be continued, I think, Warwick. I'm sure we'll speak to you again. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure being here. Thank you. Warwick McKibben's Distinguished Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the ANU's Crawford School. If you have the addiction, you'll recognise the sweet impact of driver with golf ball. Golf is growing in Australia, and not just here. Globally, participation's up 15% from 2020. Today, you'll hear part of why that is. Tim Harford's an economist, a presenter of podcasts, and a columnist for the Financial Times. The other day, he wrote something about work. We have, for a long time, been able to sit in the office and play a computer game, Minesweeper, or to email our friends, or to stare at TikTok or to watch YouTube, or to go shopping on Amazon or, or many other websites. We've blurred those boundaries, but now it's gone in, absolutely gone into overdrive because now you can go swimming while you're working. You can watch a movie while you're working because who's going to know? They're just watching you through this little Zoom box or they're monitoring your emails, paying attention to, to your output. So these, these lines have, have thoroughly blurred. Mm. That's a worry 
for the bosses. But it's a worry for us as well, because what goes around comes around. So now you're cooking a risotto for your loved ones and suddenly you think, ah, oh, maybe I should just check if there's any email come in or you know, the phone pings mm. and there's a text message from your boss. Or you really should be going to bed, but maybe you should just get your inbox empty before you do and before you know it, it's one o'clock in the morning. So that blurring gives workers certain advantages to have fun when they should be working, but it also means that they end up working when they should be having fun. It's tremendously convenient. Uh, it's also extremely dangerous because the risk, of course, is that you end up not really doing any work and also not really having any fun if you're not careful. I have certainly cooked a risotto or started one when I was technically still working and uh, I've certainly bought things. But one of the things I have not done, Tim, is go and play golf. Some very strange things have been happening on America's golf courses, and I would guess golf courses around the world. This was spotted by two California-based researchers based at Stanford University on the West Coast. And using all kinds of clever data, I think from Google Maps and Waze, they have figured out the utilisation of golf courses across America. How busy are they? How full are the car parks? How many people are going mm. to play golf? So funny thing, golf is not more popular than it was before the pandemic. Slightly fewer people play golf on a typical Saturday. But on a Wednesday afternoon, a Tuesday morning, they are all over the golf course. So golf midweek has, I think, increased, nearly doubled, Golf in certain midweek slots, like Wednesday afternoon, has more than doubled. Mm. And, uh, well, what could possibly be happening? The researchers say, we think people may be taking breaks from work and going to the golf course. Really? You think? So that is what's happening. And, yeah, when I encountered this research, I, I kind of had all kinds of feelings. I, I love the academic restraint in saying we think this might be happening. But you described this discovery as bringing a bitter joy. Well, the bitterness is... Working from home is a privilege. Golf is a game that is soaked in privilege. So this is like a double-decker privilege sandwich. This is people who are, have already won life's lottery who are now you know, really taking the mickey. On the other hand, I just love the idea of anybody sticking it to the man. So any worker in any position who is able to basically play hooky, play truant, and go off and have some fun... You've got to kind of admire that. You've got to kind of enjoy that. And so I think that's why I felt so ambivalent. I was delighted that workers who for such a long time have been getting up at six o'clock in the morning to check their emails and they've been checking their emails at midnight and they've been working weekends. And this is particularly knowledge workers. They've been letting work creep into every part of their lives. The idea that somebody is pushing back and going, you know what? Three o'clock, Wednesday, mm. I'm going to play some golf. That, I think, is absolutely delightful. And why not? If you're working a 40-hour week, you're hitting your targets and you're doing your job, is it really so bad that to make up for those you know, Saturday mornings and those Sunday evenings and those, those late nights that actually you spend Wednesday afternoon on the golf course? I think it's all right. Oh, and yeah, other activities are available. Mm. Maybe you'd rather go shopping, go to a movie, yoga swimming, kickboxing for me, but whatever it is, why not? But Tim, are the golfers doing it right and having, genuinely having, well, a very significant break? If they're doing 18 holes, that's a very, very significant break. Or are they still kind of working? This is what made me so sad. 
one of the people that the researchers talked to said that he was pretty sure that he had been in a Zoom meeting with someone who was on the golf course. Like they had their camera off and they were often on mute. But every now and then the mask slipped and you'd hear the wind in the microphone and you'd hear some talk about pars or strokes or the 11th hole or whatever. And the guy is clearly on his mobile phone pretending to be in a meeting, but actually playing golf. And of course, what he's doing is he's ruining the meeting and he's ruining the game of golf, which of course you know, it's proof in a benevolent God, but I don't think he's doing it right. That is not setting a good example. It's not. not. But to come back to your bigger point, and this rings true, I think, for many people listening now, I find it's clearly very common that I'm returning emails to people on the other side of the world just before I go to bed, that I'm checking a story on the New York Times when I really should be watching the football with my son, and that I'm sending myself a note to read something later when I'm on a walk on a Sunday with a friend. And this is happening millions of times all over the world. So the, there is, the quid pro quo is definitely there. And I don't think we can wait for the system to change. Ultimately, it would be nice if employers would do things differently. It would be nice if the apps were less addictive or whatever. But I think ultimately it's not going to change. And so therefore, as individuals, we've got to come up with our own strategies. And for me, one of the things I realised during the pandemic was just how often I had been saved from my own my own tendencies to poor work hygiene, my own tendencies to work when I shouldn't be working. I'd been saved from that by, oh, now I've got to go to the theatre. Now I've arranged to see some friends for dinner. I've got to go to a class. I've got to do something. And that's what had been saving me. And then when the pandemic hit and we had the lockdowns and everyone's suddenly working uh, from home, I lost that. And so I would come down, eat dinner or cook dinner, And then I'd go back to my desk and I'd keep working. And noticing that and realising what a bad habit that was, as things opened up again, I was really determined to get these fixed points in my calendar when I couldn't work. And if you're in a kickboxing class or you're swimming or you've gone to the theatre or you're having dinner with your friends, you just can't check your email. (laughs) And I I need that to save me from myself. That works for me. Everyone's going to have their own solution, but that is what has been working for me. I think the California golfers or the golfers discovered by the researchers in California, though, are why, especially on Wall Street, but in Silicon Valley of all places too, there's been now this pushback from more employers saying, we want you in the office more. We want you in at least three days a week because they suspected that their workers are off playing golf. I wonder, though, I wonder if that is the real issue. I think the real concern should be, and I think for sensible employers the real concern is, can we actually create a corporate culture? Do we have mentors for younger workers who just absorb the culture around them and absorb the lessons by by watching older workers? I think that's the concern and that's the challenge. And that's why so, so often these mandates to come into the office, it's pretty unusual for anyone to say you have to be in the office five days a week. Very few knowledge work employers are insisting on that now. It's much more uh, you need to do at least three days a week Mm. or there need to be two core days. Everyone's in on on Wednesdays and Thursdays or something something like that. And I think that's much more about creating that culture, which makes sense. I mean, we do have really good pre-pandemic evidence that uh, knowledge in uh, organisations is incredibly localised. Collaboration dramatically decreases. If someone's on a different floor, 
they might as well be on a different planet. Mm, so we, we know that everything's surprisingly local when it comes to these informal networks of knowledge and collaboration. And that presents employers with a big problem because this stuff matters, it's important, and at the same time, worker autonomy is important too. People like not having to commute every day. People like the flexibility to play golf on a Wednesday afternoon and to make up the email by getting up an hour earlier in the morning. So everyone is going to have to square that circle. And I don't think we've seen the last of this discussion, this argument. I don't either. Tim, it's been really interesting. Thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Tim Harford presents the podcasts More or Less and Cautionary Tales. He writes a column for the FT. That's pretty much it for now. Next time on the show... We're going to copy the government, which is looking into competition, specifically why there isn't enough of it, not here in Australia, and in a different way, not in America either. The money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Ian Coombe. I'm Richard Aidey. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more.